Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20, we read, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the face of the firmament of the heavens. And so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the, were the fifth day. We go on to verse 24, and we read more about God's creation. God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It must have thrilled God to create such a beautiful earth, the animals, the fish, the birds of the air. And then it must have pleased him greatly to create a human with all the intricacies of our system. We read in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle. So when he was able to create this uh, crowning jewel of his, of his creation, mankind, with this special component, the human spirit, when this great project came into existence, it must have pleased him immensely. God seems to love to create. Go to Colossians chapter 1. All the way at the other end of the book, we read in Colossians chapter 1. And we read, we'll break into the whole section here, but just want to highlight a particular point. We read about Jesus Christ now. Clearly it's talking about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over, over all creation. And then we read, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So when we talk about the creation, we understand that the one who carried out the creation was Jesus Christ, according to what we read here. We read the same important fact in Ephesians. We flip over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. To me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. So we read that same important fact that Jesus Christ was the one who was the instrument of creation, according to what we read. But did you notice something that adds an extra bit of information to the mix? Let's continue reading down here through the the section, down into verses 8 and 9. Let's pick it up in verse 14. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 14. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So we see... 
here, Paul characterized the relationship between the Word and God the Father as, well, a father-son relationship. In other words, Christ revealed the other individual in the Godhead for certain. He revealed him as, as we read in the New Testament, as we read of his own words in the Gospels. But he revealed him in a very, very specific, a very special and meaningful way. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. He did not talk about the other entity, the other being in the Godhead in just general terms or in terms that would, you could try to create some sort of a, another being and give an, a title or name apart from the Father. We see very specifically how he talks about coming to reveal the Father. Matthew chapter 11, and we read in verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So we understand that Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father as Father. God the Father, the Father, according to Christ's words. In fact, if we go back to the first pages of each of the Gospels, we read very clearly that God God was the, the father of Jesus Christ. It wasn't Joseph, it was God, the father, the other being in the Godhead. Now, before someone who is uh, going to be picky uh, says, hold on a second, we read about God, the father, in the Old Testament. And that is right. Because you read God as father, referred to as father, ten times in the Old Testament. But when you read, every time you go and look at that description, it's talking about the God who worked with Israel in the Old Testament, but describes him as a father cares for the people. In descriptive terms, as a father cares. But what we read about here in the New Testament is the being that we know as God the Father, who, in fact, in, I said ten times in the Old Testament, you read this descriptive word of how Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament, worked with people. Ten times. Well, here within just a matter of a chapter or two, you can read more than ten times how uh, this uh, other being in the Godhead is referred to as the Father. So very clearly, Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father as Father in the New Testament. So let's be let's be clear, because as I said, inevitably, um, I've even seen in doing a little research, we'll be taken to task for not being completely accurate in this. Okay, if you understand my my point clearly. Jesus Christ came to reveal the Father as the Father, clearly in the New Testament. Now, why am I taking so much time with it? There's a reason why this issue is of particular importance right now. You see, fatherhood, and to use another equivalent term, uh, patriarchy, is under attack today. I'll just read you a couple headlines from just within the last uh, few days. This one is, uh, well, just within this last month. It's called... Is this the beginning of the end of patriarchy? Here's another one. The Me Too campaign is an important step in ending patriarchy, but it cannot work alone. Here's another one. That's patriarchy, how female sexual liberation led to male sexual entitlement. Here's another one. Why the Me Too movement is just the start of a necessary cultural shift. 
And the first, the, the lead sentence reads like this. Conversations like this upend adjacent questions about how we talk about a culture of harassment, of rape culture, and the toxic masculinity or patriarchal masculinity ingrained in our society. So, I mean, I'm just, here, the patriarchy strikes back. Why the backlash to the Me Too movement is so depressingly familiar. And it goes on. A feminist dystopia for the Me Too movement. This is how patriarchy dies. Not with a whimper, but with a cataclysmic bang. Real change will require the patriarchy acknowledging and reforming itself. We're not there yet. And it goes, it goes on and on. You get the point. I, I didn't realize that this was such a specific issue currently until I was listening to a, a, a roundtable discussion a few weeks ago talking about these, uh, the, the, the horrible uh, curse that uh, we see reported in the news today of men who abuse their, their power, their positions of power and, and authority and influence to uh, sexually abuse women uh, who are close to them. Uh, so, horrible thing. But as I'm listening to this roundtable discussion of it, one of the individuals on the, on the discussion said, you know, the real cause of this, the real cause of what we're seeing is patriarchy. And that's what has to die. That's what has to end in this country. And I thought, wow, what a stretch. Because I always thought that good fathers, a patriarch, head of a home, someone who leads in the household, protects against women being abused, against the family being hurt in some way. So to tie it together was a bit of a, a stretch to me. But that clearly is, that individual clearly is not alone, because I read you, the headlines are full of the similar type of thinking. So, because patriarchy, or father, I'm going to say fatherhood, equivalent as equivalent, equivalent to patriarchy, because if you look up in the dictionary, go online, or go to a, an old-fashioned paper dictionary, and you'll see something like this. Patriarchy, old, is that old-fashioned to have a paper dictionary? And not necessarily, I suppose, but, but uh, as Mr. Lindley was saying this week, he was saying, you know, uh, bemoaning the fact that uh, so many people... Uh, for research will go online as opposed to reading a book. And I, I, I agree, it's, um, it's natural to turn to the Internet, very easy to turn to it. But it's nice to hold a book in your hands too sometimes, isn't it? And actually underline or, you know, highlight things. But, um, but certainly what we find is if you look up a diction, some type of a definition, you'll find something like this. Patriarchy, a system of society or government in which the father or the eldest male is head of the family and descent is traced through the male line. So I think it's a reasonable equivalency between fatherhood and, and patriarchy in, in, in general. And when you see patriarchy being attacked, in general, what were the undercurrent is fatherhood and the place of a father in a, in a family, as uh, as is, has been has been traditional, and it certainly is is biblical. So, because because it's being connected to the sexual abuse of women in the workplace, patriarchy is is being uh, attacked. And I will say this too: this is this is a technique and it's a tactic that is a psychological maybe philosophical tactic that is, 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 is being used nowadays. I think, be, be mindful of this and think about this, where something that, that is good is, is attacked through a means of attacking an evil. I'll give you an example, and this is where this actually, I think this, the, the, the concept was, actually came up 
um, as a result of a conversation I had with Mr. Uh, Mr. Wachowicz a few months ago. We were talking about different things, and I don't remember how we came up to it, but he talked about the anti-bullying campaign and how it was, it was actually a mechanism to, uh, to soften. You might say it was like a, 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 a bombs uh, softening up the enemy for the transgender campaign. And I hadn't thought about it, but he said, go back and look at some of the news articles. Is bullying new? Well, bullying has been around forever, right? I mean, bullying goes back into the days of, well, I guess the sons of Adam, right? Okay, when you were a kid in school, was bullying a problem? Of of course, bullying is a problem, always been a problem. But why has it been such a focus of attention in the last few years? What is the connection to bullying that is made again and again and again? It's transgender, bathroom situation, and, and, and so, particularly here in North Carolina, dealt with a, a, a legal issue that, that, that uh, specifically about this, the transgender use of bathrooms and so on. So, so when I heard this comment on the radio, I said, there it is. We saw, find the same technique used again. But again, does it really matter? Is patriarchy or fatherhood really that important? Or should we just declare fatherhood dead and get on with a new and more and better, more appropriate uh, set of roles in our brave new world? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, because today I'd like to analyze, then, godly fatherhood. In fact, that's the title for the sermon. It's a role that is important, particularly since God himself describes part of his role as that of a father as I introduced a few moments ago. And as we analyze God as Father, we can draw from his example both encouragement and instruction. I'll show you what I mean as we begin. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, we begin to read instructions from Jesus Christ, and we often think about these instructions in light of prayer, and as we should. But there's a very clear message for the topic of today that's woven into this instruction I want to draw your attention to. So we read, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So here we go. We understand we're talking about functioning, acting in a way that pleases our Father. We we see that very clearly introduced this idea of our Father that's brought to the the, the attention of his listeners or readers. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet, and and so on. Verse 3, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So it gives us instructions about how we we are to to function, how we are to act. When we we show an act of kindness, it should be natural. It should be so natural that it's almost like a reaction. We react with right hand to left. We don't think about it. We simply react. He says, verse 4, see what he says in verse 4, that your charitable deed may be in secret and that your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now this, this thought is so important that it's reinforced again in the next couple of verses. So let's continue reading. Verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, 
And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Well, place isn't in there. Actually, it's italicized. It's not as if he's in some mysterious, uh, uh, secret, mysterious uh, area of your house or of the world. What, what, we're, what we understand is that we can't see him. So we pray to our Father even though we can't see him. He's not visible to us, and yet we still have belief and trust that he's there. So we we pray to our Father, as, as it says, verse, uh, verse, verse 5. And when you pray, verse 7, I'm sorry, let me continue the thought. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, I want to begin with this thought. And, and what I'm going to do here, if you'll... If you'll uh, see as we go along, is first we're going to identify a characteristic of God as Father. Or I will say, characteristic of a good Father, a godly Father. And then with every characteristic, we also see as part of the characteristic, how it's laid out before us, is an action piece as well. An action plan, or an action uh, task. So in this case, the characteristic of a godly Father is that he sees. God, our Father, sees. He's watchful. Again, we'll read it just to draw your attention back to it. It says, verse uh, verse 6, uh, Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret. In other words, he's, he's watchful. Um, on our part, if we know this fact, then we acknowledge that the Father is present, and he's aware, even as we may not always be aware of him. Now, we understand this because when we have children, we recognize that they're not always aware of us being there, are they? That doesn't mean we're not watching them. And in a sense, to, to them, we may be invisible. But that doesn't mean we're there, does it? We're not, we're not there. Um, and in order to, the way it's framed here, uh, in order, as, a, as a father should be watching his children, we should be watching them not just to see what they do wrong. How is it framed here? It says, and pray to your father, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So what we see is God, our father, is looking for how to reward us, as a good father does. A good father is looking for his children to do things right, do things well, so he can encourage them, so he can reinforce that was good, good job, excellent job as opposed to simply always looking for what they've, what they've done wrong or the negative. Remember in Job chapter 2, verse 3, God said to Satan, he said, Have you considered my servant Job? He was pleased with Job and, and, his, and his actions and his conduct. And it showed, didn't it, in his attitude. He was pleased as to, as to how Job was, was, was living. God is looking for what we've done right. And as parents, as a, as a father in particular, and I will say this, this includes father and, and mother, some of the principles, but particularly as father. Now, an undercurrent of all this is, as we're reading through this, does this sound like anything like a father who would, or a, a, let's say a patriarch, uh, one who is a, a male authority figure, one who would actually, as opposed to protect and care for, one that would abuse one that would take advantage of, of someone else, a, a woman? Of course not. Exactly, exactly the, the opposite. But keep that thought in your mind as we, as we go along. So, let's, if we continue the thought, let's jump down to the end of the chapter here, verse uh, 16, 
we see, we see moreover that after he, he goes past the section, the specifics of the, of the prayer, he says, moreover, repeating this thought, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So that, again, verse uh, 18, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, again, will reward you openly. So we, need be, we, we can be confident that the God we cannot see is, carefully, is a carefully watching Father for us. You know, how can a father who is a, a, a good father, a normal father, a natural father, not be enamored with watching his children, fascinated with watching his children? Not just for show. You know, we, we can watch our children when they're doing some type of an activity, when they're doing some type of a sports or music event. You know, we can watch them to show them that we're there or to show others that we're there. That's a bit artificial, isn't it? But truly, as a, as a father, truly, I think it's hard not to just enjoy watching your kids. Watch them play. Watch them function, especially as they grow up, because they change. And they, 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 they mature. And there are different stages of how they function. They think and they talk and they interact. And it's especially wonderful when you see multiple kids playing together and interacting and talking and Hitting and fighting. Well, not that part so much, but uh, that, that disappoints us when we see them, you know, beat up on each other, argue. But when they're when they're peacefully playing together, it's a joy, isn't it? It's a joy. Um, we it, it, it's it's a perfectly natural thing to do. I was just about to brag on my kids, but I won't. So because because it's on your mind, isn't it? As a as a parent, it's so easy to with other parents. I'm sorry. Yesterday, I I actually uh, took about ten minutes of a meeting yesterday morning with our uh, education group. I said, look, I'm sorry. I've got to brag on, on on my kids here, and I took their time to to show them a little video, you know, of my kids, and uh, because that's what we do as parents, right? But, but think about that as, as as God. Do we think about God who who loves to watch us and see us? doing well and see us interacting with other people and doing this and doing that and finding joy in the things that we do? Do we think that God is any different? Well, he's watching us. He's, he's seeing us. He's seeing us. And then let me highlight that, that next step. I've already touched on it. But when there's seeing, when there's watching, the action step is able to be put into motion. What is the action step? The reward, right? We read about the reward. So God sees, and then he's able to reward, as opposed to simply always correcting, saying no, 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 no. He's able to reward. Let me, look, let me show you an example. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 16. I'll show you an example of Jesus Christ. As he dealt with his disciples, in a sense, as a fulfilling those, those fatherly characteristics. Matthew chapter 16, and we read verse 13. Peter, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, we know himself, this he was giving this, this comparison, uh, I will build my church, and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Well, we see here that Peter and, his, and the other disciples were rewarded for their leadership and their loyalty, weren't, weren't, weren't they? And, and he didn't do so because they got the answer right for the previous question. <laughs> do you think that because they said when he asked, who do some say that I am? Oh, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Bingo! You now have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. No, that wasn't why. Because of what he, of, of seeing them, interacting with them over the days and the weeks. It put him in a position to say, I'm going to, because I've been watching you, I see what you're doing. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you responsibility. And I'm, I'm going to reward you with opportunity and responsibility. So it was a well-thought-out statement. It wasn't just on the spur of the moment. What he said here was, was thought out based on what he saw. So God the Father sees, and then he can reward to give opportunity. We as fathers we see, and then we can give opportunity and reward and responsibility for what we, what we see. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. And let's, let's take the next step then in reviewing characteristics of godly fatherhood. So back to Matthew chapter 6, and we continue in verse, in verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So what do we find? We only go one verse, and we find some, some more information about godly fatherhood. What, what do we gain from this? Well, what, what does it say? For your Father knows the things, verse 8, you have need of before you ask him. Knowing implies what? Knowing implies an interest. So God the Father is interested in us. He wants to know. He wants to understand us. He's not just seeing. He, he's, he's actually uh, in, in, very uh, anxiously and in an in interested, passionate way. He wants to know what we're about. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. He wants to know what we think. Mark chapter 10. When a father takes the opportunity to know his, his children, to be watching, seeing, giving them responsibility, and then, and then seeking to understand them, it puts him in a position then to, uh, to be of more help in training them and working with them. Mark chapter 10, and let's go to verse 35. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. 
But Jesus said to him, you know the story, don't you? You don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, yes, certainly we're able. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed the cup, drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself. I'm going to break in right here. Because was was Christ um, as distressed and as displeased as the other disciples? I don't get that impression. Let's keep on reading. Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones, their great ones, exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what did Christ do? He took the opportunity. Why? Because he knew them. Was this the first time that he had bumped into this particular uh, characteristic of his disciples? Vying for who would get the better reward or what have you. Was this the first? Did this just come up on this day? He said, wow, I'd better do something about this. I'd better say something. No, of course not. He knew them because he walked with them. He, he was with them daily, day in, day out, over the weeks and months and years. So what happens with a father who knows his child or his children? You look for opportunities to teach lessons. And it was a perfect opportunity to teach a lesson that he knew they needed to learn. We can see this. I could go and just take the, the whole sermon on this point and see how, how this was brought out in other ways, this, this particular attitude. But I think you probably get the point from, from this, just this example. He didn't have to somehow miraculously read their minds at that moment. He, he, he through the power of, of the Holy Spirit, certainly he, he's able to perceive uh, the mind of a human. It's hard for us to understand completely, but we can understand the perceiving the mind of a child, can't we? Because all you have to do is have a, a two-year-old running around and put a little toy on a table near them. And what's going to happen? Well, as soon as you put that bright and shiny toy near them, they're going to look and they're going to go, ah, and they're going to grab for the toy, Right? What if you put a little, uh, with little kids, you put a, a, a box of or, or a cookie jar full of cookies on the table, and you have some little kids that walk into the room, well, maybe big kids as well. I've got to tell you a little secret. My mother has ginger, ginger snap cookies in her kitchen, and the first thing I do when I walk into her house to visit her is to visit that that ginger snap cookie jar, because I love ginger snap cookies. So I can't just say children, I, I suppose. Well, let's, let's talk about children. Okay, so children, if, you, if there's a cookie jar on the table, and they know it has cookies on it, and they come into the room, what's going to happen? They're going to go right for the cookie jar, right? Well, is that magic to read their minds? No, of course it's not. We know. I mean, we, we understand that with, uh, you know, you can understand it with pets. This is, this is part of life. We're attracted to things. So Christ knew his disciples, he knew them, and he took the opportunity 
to teach to teach a, a lesson. If we are in tune with our children, we don't have to be mind readers to know what's going on inside their heads. So, characteristic, a second characteristic as we go through Matthew 6 there, is God the Father knows. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. And he also, he also knows what's good for us. He knows where we're coming from. We use this term in terms of other people. No, I, want, I need to know where they're coming from. Does God know where we're coming from? More so than any other, any other human being. He knows where we're coming from. And as a result then, as a result, then he will then be listening carefully and then looking for opportunities to teach us. At least that's what we see Christ did, didn't, don't we? As parents, as fathers in particular, it's a good example to, example to emulate, isn't it? Luke chapter 11. Let's, let's think of an action step in this regard then. If we are interested in our, our children and our family and we want to know them, then certainly when we are asked, we should be responsive. But even beyond when we're asked, when we're asked specifically, we need to be attentive. We need to be aware of, of, of their needs, just as God the Father is with us. Luke chapter 11, this is, this is, this was what Christ says right here in Luke chapter 11. He says, I say to you, verse 9, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? We're, we're receptive to our children's needs. We want to help them. We want to give them good things. And so he says, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, you know, you're just human, and yet, yet you're somewhat receptive to your children and their needs, okay, as a natural, halfway decent parent? Well, then what about God our Father? He says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The most powerful gift that we could possibly ask for. So this is a point, as we go back to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll continue, but this is a point where we are stretched, I, I will admit. Let's, uh, actually, I, I take that back. I do want to go to Ephesians 3 before we go back. This is a, a point where we are stretched as fathers. Because if we are truly tuned in to our children, it means sometimes sacrificing our own pleasures, our own interests, our own life, laying down our own life for our children. You know, are we willing to do that? Are we able to do that? Ephesians chapter 6. Are we able to mind our own emotions and mind our own wants and our own feelings and hurts and all of that in order to think of our, of our children and their development and building them up and working with them and training them? We're told here, very simply, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Verse 4, and you, fathers, I guess we get, we're given some instructions specifically, aren't we? For us as fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You can only do this, we can only do this, if we are, if we know our children, if we're tuned into them, if we're able to put aside sometimes even our own, our own wants, our own desires, our own pleasure to, to tune in to our, to our children. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. Let's pick up where we left off. Matthew chapter 6. So even in the introduction to this, this prayer, we see some characteristics of a godly father. Encouraging to us and also instructive. Verse 9. In this manner, therefore, back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We find the first, now the first step in this model prayer, this example of a prayer to, to God the Father. Honor should be given to our Father God in heaven. Godly fatherhood involves honor. It involves honor. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Isn't this what we're told in Exodus 20 when we're given these Fundamentally important Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, Certainly a a personal command and also a a national command, I would say. Because if if, if you do not build respect for authority, for fatherhood, for families as, as in the, in the small components of families, then what happens on a national level? I would say that society crumbles as, as a reflection of that. I think we're, we're seeing that now. There's a breakdown for even a recognition of authority. And ultimately, the end of that is, is, is chaos, is strife. And so I would say this applies not just to an individual, but also to a, a, on a larger level to a, to a people. But we're told that we have a, a command here that we are to we are to learn and teach honor for father and mother. So the challenge for then, let's say, for a father, if we want to apply this, and as you can see, we're applying this both to God the Father and to us, and we're going back and forth and trying to make this uh, both encouraging to us, God the Father, and instructive to us. The challenge for a father and, and a mother is to be honorable, isn't it? Let's go back to Proverbs 22. Have you noticed that the natural reaction that we have, we have kids, the natural reaction for us, when our kids mess up, make mistakes, do something foolish, um, say something awkward, wrong, whatever else, what's the natural reaction for us? It's to be embarrassed for them, isn't it? Because why? We don't want to be embarrassed by our kids. That, that, that's, that's natural. How many parents are embarrassed and actually, and actually will be uh, tougher on their kids when they're in public than they are at home? When they're home, they can get away with anything. Just walk away and just say, you know, fooey on you. In public, boy, that parent is all over that kid. Stop this, stop this, stop this. Why is that? It's because we don't want to be seen by other parents to have our, our, our kid misbehaving, Right? Uh, that's natural reaction. I, I tell you, uh, having five kids myself, 
you know, over the years, having uh, one or two services every day, you're going here, there, and the everywhere, everywhere. I love to see other people's kids misbehave. It was such a pleasure. And I would laugh and point at them, and uh, it was, it was and I told them, I said, it's so nice to see somebody else's kids misbehave too, you know, because... I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Of course, they were horrified if a little, you know, little Johnny did something wrong, said something wrong, whatever else. Uh, but, but we all feel that way because why? Because we feel it's a reflection on us, and we don't want to look bad because of what our kids do. Well, but have we ever thought about the other way around? Are we honorable as a father? Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Simple proverb, who gives that good name? Who gives that reputation to a family and to children? A father. Our actions, we need to recognize that that is something that we can do for our children. It's not just children to consider their actions and how they reflect upon their parents. But it's, it's what the, 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 the actions and the reputation of a parent, father, does for children. I'll give you an example. Think about David. We could, we could look at a, a lot of the places where this is mentioned, but I think when I say this, you'll, it'll come to mind. He was referred to again and again in the story of the kings, where you would have a king, for example, that would say, he walked not in the ways of David his father, or he walked in the ways of David his father. Why, why was that phrase used? It's because David's reputation and legacy lived on down through the years. It meant something to a king to be referred to as one who walked in the ways of David, his father. So that's a legacy that David left for his, his sons. His name was honored, and that gave his offspring something to, something to, to live up to. But we have a God who is honorable. This is what we read here back in, in Matthew chapter 6 right at the beginning of this, of this prayer. He is respectable. He is worthy of worship because he is good. That may sound trite or may sound simple, may sound obvious, but our God is not like other gods. You know, the gods of mankind throughout history have been petty. They've been, they've been able to be manipulated. They fought among themselves. If you think about the history of gods through uh, ancient times, uh, some need to be washed yearly. I remember when I lived in Thailand, there was a ceremony every, uh, every, every spring that you'd see a little town here and there you might be visiting, and you'd see they have a ceremony where they take their, their Buddha image um, to the river to be washed in this yearly ceremony. So some gods, in a sense, they don't look to the, the Buddha. Strictly speaking, they don't look to the Buddha as a god. They look to him as um, the Buddha who taught. And when you worship the Buddha or you, you give honor to the Buddha, you're actually giving honor to his teachings. But in reality, um, what they do is they worship the Buddha. Okay. Uh, so some gods have to be washed down at the river every year. But see, our god doesn't have to be washed at the river. And he's not petty. He doesn't have to be, he can't be manipulated. No, our god is, is honorable. And that attribute of honor should be part of godly fatherhood and our recognition of godly fatherhood. It's also part, as I, as I briefly described, it's part of what should be uh, attached to a, a father and his conduct. I want to read you something from an article from the American Enterprise. Um, it's called Fatherhood is Not for Wimps. And the, the author, he quotes from Raisin in the Sun. 
Raising the Sun is a, uh, it's a play. Uh, it was written many years ago. Perhaps you've seen it, perhaps you've not. Let me read the description of it, and I think you'll see, in this case, how important honor is for a father and a family. That's the message, I'm breaking into the article, of the classic Lorraine Hansberry play, A Raisin in the Sun. At one point, Mama, the family matriarch, upbraids her daughter for humiliating her brother Walter, the senior man of the house, during his moment of weakness. What did you tell him a minute ago? That he wasn't a man? Chides Mama in a powerful speech. Child... When do you think it's the time to love somebody the most? When they done good and made things easy for everybody? Well then, you ain't through learning because that ain't the time at all. It's when he's at his lowest and can't believe himself because the world done whipped him so. Mama also, the article goes on, also prods Walter's honor. When their African-American family must face a climactic showdown with a hostile neighbor, she quietly defers to Walter as the household's representative and then insists that Walter's son should witness the proceedings. Travis, you stay right here, and you make him understand what you're doing, Walter Lee. You teach him good like Willie Harris taught you. You show where our five generations done come to. Go ahead, son. In the end, the previously wavering Walter stands up for the family honor in a moment of crowning courage. Bursting with joy afterwards, Mama confides to Walter's wife, he finally come into his manhood today, didn't he? It's because they don't have the elemental satisfaction of proudly sustaining a clan that so many underclass men today, the author says, resort instead to pointless provings of their manhood through bravado and bluster. The most elemental male creed is, I shield and support, therefore I am. Men not involved in shielding and supporting find other ways to prove their existence. I hurt, therefore I am, is one twisted alternative. The graffiti boy's proof is, I deface, therefore I am. The gangbanger reasons, I kill, therefore I am. The street libertine says, I impregnate, therefore I am. At the other end of the economic spectrum, too, there are rows upon rows of rich hedonists who can only babble, I feel pleasure, therefore I am. And contrary to feminist claims, these are all expressions of a stunted, not an exaggerated masculinity. Honor is important for fathers. It's important for God. He commands us to honor him with good reason. Children need, let's talk about an action step then. Okay, we understand what should be. A father should be honored. We should honor our father. He is honorable. We should do our best to be honorable. And children need to be need to be taught to honor their father. It doesn't happen just by fiat. Children need to be taught to honor their father and mother. It is a command. It is a command. We read Exodus 20. That specifically states that. We read in other principles that go hand in glove, like rising up before the hoary head in Leviticus chapter chapter 19. Let's go back to Matthew 6, and let's continue. Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you want to, just if you write in your Bible, I have next to, next to those words in my Bible, honor. A godly father, honor. The honor is, is part of godly fatherhood. Verse 10, you could pencil something else next to. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, God as a godly father has a plan. He has a kingdom. He has a will for his family that he is building. A vision. 
to God plans. He creates direction. He has a philosophy of life, a mind, a way of thinking, a set of priorities, a perspective, an approach. He doesn't just absorb whatever society around says. He has a plan. And certainly God the Father does. Your kingdom come. We are to, we are to pray because he has a plan. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. We see this, this characteristic emulated by Joshua. Joshua 24, this famous speech that he gave, that it, it really echoes in history, doesn't it? Because we see the impression that he made in standing for what his family was going to be about. And not being hesitant, saying, you know, whatever my kids come up with, however they think, whatever they think is best, and isn't that the mantra of today's society? Every generation should have the opportunity to choose what's right and wrong for themselves. That's the child-rearing mantra that has been in place for the past 50 years. But that's not God's mantra for passing on a legacy. God's instruction is, no, you teach, so you pass on good things. You have a plan. And Joshua said, my plan is God's plan. And so he said, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, he tells the Israelites in this this final speech, he says, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You don't think those words rang in the ears of his offspring down through the years? We, He said, our family... I'll make it clear what our, my plan is for our family, and that is to remain faithful to God. We write, go back to Genesis chapter 18. We find that God blessed Abraham for the same reason. He was able to use Abraham so powerfully because Abraham, as a father, was willing to stand on a plan. He was willing to be clear in where his loyalties lay, what his priorities were, what his perspective was. If we can do that as fathers for our family, where we can be able to hold the line and say, no, I don't care what other kids do. You're not doing that. I don't care what other families do. No, this is what we're going to do. It's not because um, your friends told you this should be, or frankly, it's even what peers in the church or whatever else. You know, it has to be individually as a family, as parents, as fathers in particular. We have to be able to say, look, this is what we're doing because this is what we believe in. It's not what someone else said, even whether it's a pastor or sometimes people will associate things and blame things on the church. They say, well, this is what the church says. Well, we should believe what the church says, and then it's ours. We take ownership of it. We can't blame and and off offload the the blame for what we believe 
And so Abraham illustrated that. He believed what God said, and it was counted for righteousness. So we read in verse in Genesis 18, verse 16, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. We see in Abraham's life, because he was willing to to be very clear on where he stood. His faithfulness, his obedience to to God. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. God wants fathers that will command their children after him. He wants fathers and mothers, I will add, who will support their husbands in commanding their children the way to go, not making it as an option. Now, Children, as they grow up, may choose to go a different way. That is their choice as free moral agents. But we don't open the option up to them, offer it as as good as going the right way. Just a, No, we, we make it clear that's the wrong way. Don't go there. If they go there, that's their, that is their choice. But there, the perspective is there, there's a, a, a difference in, in almost setting good and evil as equal. As just equal choices, no, there aren't equal choices. There are horrible consequences for 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 going for evil, for going the wrong way. And so we see very clearly. He said, "Look, I, I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him." And as a result, God blessed Abraham, and he established. The, the root of what we find today, frankly, as referred to as Judeo-Christian uh, uh, segment of the world, okay? The Judeo-Christian uh, population of the world is goes all the way back to right here. Those who don't even know why they have a certain sense of affiliation with these with the Bible. Where, where does the, how does that happen? How does it happen in our country that we we don't even we can even argue about the Bible? When uh, years ago, when I was in Thailand, I had the opportunity to to counsel for baptism a a, a young lady uh, who wanted to be baptized. She was being very becoming very serious with a, a Thai man who was who was a member, a baptized member. And so she, he was explaining to her about God's ways and this and that. But she so she wanted to pursue it further and be and then be baptized like him. She wanted to marry him, you know. So so I had to. I said, okay, let's sit down and talk. And we began talking, and I. I, I, I said, well, okay, we need to talk about repentance. We need to talk about belief in God's law. And we began to talk about some different things. She said, well, I have a couple questions. Um, you, you mentioned Abraham in the conversation. Who is Abraham? I think, okay, maybe that was Adam. You mentioned Adam. Who, who is Adam anyway? I said, okay, hmm. Well, you know, um, let's go forward, read, read about Abraham and Noah and these characters. Well, who are those people anyway? In fact, who is this Jesus Christ person? And I thought to myself, wow, we have a long ways to go. We basically have to, we have to go over the thread of the Bible. Why? Because there's no familiarity even with the characters, the story. But yet, in a swath of the world that, by the way, is, is connected to this man right here, a swath of the world, we have this general, let's say philosophical, however you want to describe it, underpinning of what we call Judeo-Christian uh, uh, culture. 
So, indeed, he did, Abraham did reflect that godly, fatherly uh, uh, attribute of having a plan for his family. And we see how he taught his, his family. Now, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 3. So, I, I've been talking about the characteristic, and obviously, the, 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 the action part is somewhat clear. I've been talking about enunciating that. And, uh, but I want to show you how that, that, how, that, how that ends up with another example. Because the action step, surely, then, is not just having the plan, but it's enunciating the plan to our children. It's enunciating. It's, 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 it's making sure that they are clear on where we stand. In a sense, it's imprinting it upon them. It's, it's trying to do our best we can to, to imprint that upon them, if I can use that phrase. We, we, we read about it, referred to as training up a child in the way he should go, for example, in the Proverbs. 1 Kings chapter 3. I, I want to take you here because I, I, want, I want to read this. And then uh, as we're reading, think about where did this imprint come from? Where do these thoughts come from? Or from where did these thoughts come? I have to have my word order grammatically correct here. From where did these thoughts come? First, uh, First Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. Now this whole section is the section where... Uh, Solomon goes before the God. We can read, uh, ver- goes before God, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Um, let me back up. Verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and an uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I did not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. So here we come to the the classic statement, the crux of the matter. He says, therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. Solomon asked for issues of the heart. He asked for understanding. He asked for wisdom to be able to to lead his people. What does that sound like? Where did he get these ideas? It's not always the way the kings thought, especially when they were young. Who do you think it? Who do you think it sounded like? Well, we don't. It's not not a great mystery to put two and two together, is it? Because all you have to do, not only reading, for example, the life of David and how he responded to to God, but we can read Psalms. I mean, Psalm 101, for example. I was just flipping through and thinking, where which which Psalm to read? Because there are many, many, many that reflect a mind. For example, Psalm 101. Uh, 
I will sing, verse 1, I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. O when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall not shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. You can read throughout the rest of the psalm. And so many of the psalms of David help us to read, read his, his heart. I contend, and you read the same thing. Well, let's go to Proverbs. I, I, I contend that David was able to imprint upon Solomon a way of thinking because of his love of God. That that actually it it jumped it helped Solomon. It jump started him in his rulership. Now we see as time went by, he drifted into his own lusts and desires and all of that. But I, I cannot, nobody, can, you cannot convince me that David did not make an impression on his son, um, because of what we read of Solomon's early life, as as was exemplified uh, by back in First chapter, First Kings chapter three, the Proverbs. You read Proverbs verse one, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. Um, we find. As he talks about wisdom, he talks about it with the perspective of a father to a son. He says in verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father. My son, verse chapter 2, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, this desire to pass on wisdom to his, his son, and we see this reflected again in chapter 3, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, hear, my children, the instruction of a, of a father. So we find, I, I believe it's a reflection of David's imprint upon Solomon of, of a of looking to God for, for wisdom. It was a legacy that he passed on, this, this imprint that he gave him. Let's go back to, to Matthew, chapter 6, and we could... Look at some other examples. I was going to even look at some examples of Abraham and how we could see his imprint passed on. And ultimately, we read he was the, called the father of the faithful in Romans chapter 4. What is that? It's, a, it's taking a, a characteristic and assigning it to those who follow in that path. But let's continue in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we read verse 11. Give us this day, then, he says, our daily bread, verse 11. Now, you can see we're, gonna, we're not going to even get to the whole, certainly through the whole chapter and uh, maybe not through the whole prayer here. But I, I think you get the point. I, I would hope that you'll, you'll ponder this, this section here, this prayer, with the characteristics of God as Father in, in mind, even beyond the time of the sermon. But he says... In this case, give us our day, our daily bread. What does that teach us? Well, that God is our sustainer. God is our sustainer. Not only we could talk about certainly with, with manna and with uh, uh, miracles of loaves and fishes, some very specific ways that he fed those with whom he was working. Uh, but we could see that very, very, very much uh, physically. But also emotionally, spiritually, God sustains. And that is a part of the role of a father. We can see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And, for example, in verse 8, a father who is a godly father cannot avoid, cannot walk away from his 
responsibility to care for, to provide, to give sustenance to his family. If anyone, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own house, or for his own rather, and especially for those of his household, has denied the faith, it is a spiritual matter. Within God's church, if a father is not caring for his family, is not providing for his family, is not dedicated to doing that, it is not just a physical issue. It is a spiritual issue. He is denying the faith. And so that gives us a bit of our walking orders, doesn't it, as men, that we need to be prepared for, certainly before marriage and in marriage. We need to have that as a, as a, a major uh, a, a task within our mind to, to sustain, to provide for our family, physically, emotionally, and even, uh, and even certainly spiritually as we can, not in place of God, but trying to encourage our, our family in, in spiritual matters. It is a it is a spiritual issue. He's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We can look at um, let's go back quickly to First Kings chapter two. We were talking about Solomon and David, and we can read of David's words to Solomon in this regard. First First Kings chapter two. Look what David said. I would classify this as a spiritual or emotional encouragement. First Kings chapter 2 and verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, and that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So he said, Stay true to, to, to my God and your God. Stay true to his ways and his instructions. He encouraged Solomon. And I believe that those words rang in Solomon's ears as he began to, to, uh, to rule. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31. Here's an example along the same lines with Moses and Joshua. Deuteronomy 31 We read the Song of Moses here in verse in verse in chapter thirty-two, but it's a bit of an introduction to that. Back in verse uh, twenty-two, I begin. We read. I believe we begin to read. Yes. Therefore, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it the children of Israel. Then, verse twenty-three. Then he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said, "Be strong and of good courage." For you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So we find that Moses, as a father figure to Joshua, Moses encouraged him. He strengthened Joshua. Uh, and I, I will say, now we're talking, we're talking about different levels here. We're talking about God's fatherly care of us. And we're talking about us as fathers. But we're also, in talk, also talking about care, fatherly characteristics. 
that as men we can we can encourage other younger men sometimes you may say well i don't i don't have any children i don't have a son or my my son is far away we can say it doesn't apply to me no because when a man and it encourages a younger man. It's a very powerful thing. Fulfills some of these characteristics. I, I know in my life, I've had, let's say, other older men uh, who have had, had given, given encouragement in a fatherly way. Sometimes, even as a young man, as a teenager, it can be someone who's a, a young adult who can, can be, a, in a sense, a, a, a father of sorts or a mentor, an older man. But these are characteristics, these are, these are, are attributes that, that actually can be, uh, that can be built into any of us. Not just, it's not just something that applies to the fact if we have young little children. So please, please think about that. Now let's go back before we conclude here to Matthew chapter 6. We do have a couple more characteristics of a father, and we'll just touch on them briefly before we close. I hope you'll, again, get the, the idea from what I've been talking about here. Matthew chapter 6, and we continue. Give us this day our daily bread, sustenance. We read, that's what that's talking about. Verse, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What characteristic are we talking about there? We're talking about mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness is a godly characteristic. We can read of a, an example of that in Luke chapter 15, where we see this in action. We can have a merciful attitude, but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, we need to actually be willing to forgive as, as, a, as a statement of fact. I forgive you. It's okay. We can go on. Don't hold a grudge. And we see a beautiful example of that in Luke chapter 15, where we read about this story of the prodigal son. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but if you want to jot it down with your notes, read through it in relation to this fatherly characteristic. I want to go right to the next one quickly then, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What is this as a characteristic of godly fatherhood? I, to me, the way this is laid out to me, it seems like it's twofold. On the one hand, we have protection, and the other is deliverance. Now, think, think about that. He says, do not lead us into temptation. In other words, do not allow your guidance. We look to you for guidance. Don't allow your guidance to bring us into danger. Okay? On the one hand. So it's, it's in a sense, it's protection. But if we are in danger, deliver us. So in a sense, it's, it's twofold. You know, it's like if you're leading a, a backpacking trip. You, know, you want the guide not to lead you down the wrong path. And at the same time, if there is danger, you want him to be able to help you to get out of that danger, right? It's, it's twofold. And so in that same sense, as a father, we can look at Different examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read about the importance of, of, of fathers teaching their children, protecting them from paths that will lead them into, into, into danger. And at the same time, we read this, this principle of, of, uh, of deliverance. You know, the issue of, of workplace sexual abuse is real, and it's perhaps it's part of our world where we do have women 
now, by and large, the majority of the workforce, if I understand the statistics correctly, women uh, do suffer under the authority of a man who does not have their interests at heart as a, as a father or a family member. It's, the, it's a, a boss who may even have some sort of, of designs on a woman to try to get her to go out with him or try to put her in a compromising position. The way our world is built now with with women in the workplace, it sets up a situation where women are in positions more and more with men who have, don't necessarily have their interests at heart as a father would. And this point applies directly to that. Deliver us from the evil one. A father is supposed to deliver from evil, not bring evil upon a woman. Exactly contrary to what these, these, these men are, are doing. So, what we read here in Matthew chapter 6 in just these few verses, and we can read lots of verses throughout the Bible about, about fatherhood and examples of fatherhood, but right here, I think we have a template that gives us a, an, a good insight into understanding godly fatherhood. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. The better that we as fathers understand what godly fatherhood or right godly patriarchy is about, Certainly the better we're going to serve our families. But we also understand God more, don't we? We understand the nature of God even more more accurately. Colossians chapter 1. Like so many aspects of godly thinking, I think we find one more issue here. Understanding of godly fatherhood is being uh, is being destroyed, is being eroded, like so many different aspects of, of any any godly thinking at all in our, our world. We find one more is taking a, a tumble based on certainly something that's a, a wrong, but it makes a, a scapegoat out of something that is is actually very good and very right. That is fatherhood. It's Colossians chapter one. And we read here in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. I'm emphasizing this because ultimately God wants to have peace with us. As a father, he wants to bring us close to him. He wants reconciliation. He doesn't want separation. He doesn't want to uh, drive us away, condemn us. He wants reconciliation as a good father. And so he says... Verse 20, and you, who again, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." It's the example and the attitude of a real father. It's not the the example that we are with which we're being pumped and attacked today. Let's go to Second Corinthians chapter six and we'll conclude here. We're being told by some that fatherhood or patriarchy 
and the, the authority that goes with that properly administered and, and exercised, exercise, we're told that it's the problem. But in reality, God has given it to us as a solution. Second Corinthians chapter 6. We read in verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. So Paul is, is beseeching them. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You see, so Paul was able to take on, in a sense, fatherly attributes with those whom he was serving. And we find he builds that into this very scripture because he quotes, as we see here in verse 16 and 17, he quotes words from the Old Testament that reflect the God of the Old Testament's working with ancient Israel in a fatherly way. But he brings it very much into the into this context. So let's continue reading. He says, I'll return again. I speak to you as children. You also be open. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. God wants us close to him. He wants us to reflect him. He wants to be merciful and forgiving to us. He wants to protect us. He doesn't want us to seek protection from another. And like we don't want our children to look to others outside the family for protection, for sustenance. We want them to look to us as a father, as our mother. We want our children to, to seek us and us to have a, a, a good, loving relationship with them as does God. So he says, verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Not as if he was not ultimately going, planning to work with the whole world, but he was, and this is quoted from working with Israel, he's saying, look, I, I want you to be close to me. So you can be that example, ultimately, for the whole world, where I can be a father to the whole world. And so he says, do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God, the Father, as he was referred to by Jesus Christ, has these, these attributes. Jesus Christ actually reflects those same attributes of fatherliness in a godly way. And we, likewise, should reflect those same attributes. Godly fatherhood is a blessing and an example for us to cherish and to reflect as fathers and, and ultimately as sincere, loving Christians. Let's do our part within our families, within our, our homes, within our congregations to, to reinvigorate the value of fatherhood. It is a true value. And it's a value that was established and reflected by God the Father also reflected in Jesus Christ. Let's not be numbed or knocked off balance by the things that happen in our world around us. Be able to discern how to how, uh, the proper perspective, how to think about what's happening, always within 
the focus that are, that's given to us through the scriptures. And I would challenge you to even think more beyond these these verses here in Matthew 6 about godly fatherhood because it's a topic that should be on our minds as particularly if we have children uh, throughout the year and uh, especially when we're hit by different items in the news that challenge these fundamental beliefs.